Hello, and welcome to the Music Teacher Coffee Talk podcast. I'm Tanya. And I'm Carrie. We are both elementary music teachers who love to talk shop, preferably over a steaming cup of coffee. This is episode number 116. Today we'll be concluding our 2022 Summer Book Club with part three of Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. We'll also do a fun summer quiz. And in our CODA section, we'll give some specific recommendations of our favorite things we are enjoying out of the music room. So grab your beverage of choice and let's get started. So now it is time to do a fun summer quiz, since we're not sharing highs and lows in the summer, because we're not in our classroom right now. It's all highs right now. Enjoying (laughs) summer. Yeah. Yeah. And and other things. Um, Anyways, but it is time to start thinking about going back to school. Just a tiny bit. Just a tiny bit. Mm -hmm. So here is a personality quiz from a website called Bino that is obviously very British. There's some British vocabulary in here. Um, But it is a personality quiz. What type of teacher are you? Student's best friend or the teacher from hell? Answer these questions and find out what kind of teacher you would be. I'm all of those things. <laughs> right. Depends on the day. This is yeah. totally silly. This is obviously not music teacher specific and it's just goofy. So are you ready, Tanya? Um, yeah. Am I going to need to have a extra therapist session for this one? No, it is very silly. Okay. Right. It's time to go to work. How do you get to school? There are four choices. A, run all the way there, even though you live 10 miles away. B, drive your bright pink, environmentally friendly electric car to school whilst humming a happy tune. C, get the boss of the nearest motorcycle gang to give you a lift and tell him off for forgetting your packed lunch. Or D, take the bus and complain about it the whole way. I don't do any of those things. But you just play along. (laughs) Okay, I'll go with the environmentally pink coming a happy tune. And there is such a cute picture of this pink car, and it's got like balloons and flowers and presents and the Eiffel Tower coming out of the back. I don't really know why. Okay, going with that. All right, question two. One of your students has forgotten their pen for class test today. What do you do? A, make them carve their answers into a tree with a hunting knife instead. B, let them use your incredibly rare laser fountain pen that was used as a prop in a James Bond movie back in the 80s. C, just let them, just lend them a black bureau, and I had to look this up. It's a ballpoint pen, so it's British slang for ballpoint pen, apparently. So Uh a black pen, and make sure they don't steal it. Or D, tell them not to worry and let them sing their answers instead. Oh, well, I was going to say C, but if we can sing the answers, then I'm all about that. Okay, cool. I think that's the only music question, so there you go. All right. (laughs) After the test, you want to do something a bit more fun. What do you do next? A, do some push-ups and shout at everyone for 20 minutes straight. B, get everyone to express different feelings by dancing in a circle. C, tell everyone about that time you got lost in the jungles of Indonesia and had to survive by eating bees. Or D, do another test. (laughs) Well, you know, we've got to get into a circle and dance. I mean, (laughs) bring out the orphan me. It is what we do. Yeah. (laughs) All right. You walk into the staff room and all the other teachers look at you funny. Why? A, because you're covered in mud and they're snarling at them. 
be because you forgot to take all the flowers out of your hair from your last lesson. C, because you're wearing a leather jacket and a t-shirt that says legend on it. Or D, you don't know. They always look at you funny. Wow, that's hard. Um, I probably have the flowers or like, you know, the bee antenna or some puppets on my hand. Sure. Or okay. they always look at me funny. Yeah, some sort of goofy hat that you were wearing. Yeah. Okay. We'll go with B. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, you get talking to the janitor, custodian, building engineer, whatever terminology your school uses, over lunch. She's a nice person, but says something you disagree with. What do you do? A, smash the sandwich out of her hand and throw the table out of the window. B, politely mumble something under your breath. C, instantly think up a really witty joke and get a round of applause from all the other teachers. Or D, inform them that they are wrong and their opinion is based on incorrect information. Oh, I'd probably honestly mumble something. And, <laughs> you you know. want to do the last one, but... I want to do the last one, but <laughs> I know about the, the consequences for things. And but this is true, especially They're long-reaching. Yeah, and I, I need help with my risers, so... Exactly. <laughs> I'll mumble. Okay. One of your students is playing with his phone even though you already told him to stop it. What do you do? A. Force him to stand outside in the freezing rain and dig a grave for his phone. B. Politely ask him again and give him a disappointed look. C. Pop a balloon behind him and get everyone to laugh when he jumps. Or D, sigh really loudly until he eventually stops. <laughs> My children would probably tell you that I'm totally D. <laughs> Is that your final answer? Uh, yeah, I'll probably just sigh really loudly until, <laughs> until it stops, yeah. Sweet. Passive aggressive. Okay. Yeah. It's time to set homework for the next lesson. What do you set your class? That's just a funny way of saying that. Again, British side, I suppose. Okay, make them learn how to take apart a rowing machine and put it back together whilst wearing a blindfold. B, make them write a poem inspired by squeaky trainers. C, make them practice how to build a bear trap out of lollipop sticks. Or D, make them write lines. Jeez, those are all very intense. <laughs> We'll go with the writing poetry bit. Sure. Or in our case, a song, most likely. Yeah. About squeaky, squeaky sneakers. Squeaky trainers, yes. Yeah. It's the last day of the term, so you want to show your class a video as a treat. What do you watch? A, highlights from your favorite wars. B, a black and white romance film made in Norway. <laughs> oh, that makes me laugh. C, next year's Star Wars movie that hasn't even been filmed yet. Or D, a documentary about multiplication. Wow. None of these are great. Intense choices again. <laughs> um, I don't want to watch any of those. What was the second one? Uh, black and white romance film made in Norway. Oh, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not appropriate, but yeah, we'll go no, with that. I know. Okay, what inspired you to become a teacher? A, having power over smaller, weaker humans. B, you want to make the world a better place. C, you need a job to pay for your exploration of the Gobi Desert. Is that how you pronounce that? G-O-B-I, yes. Gobi? Yes. Or absolutely. D, because, you're, because school is your favorite place ever. Oh, well, B and D, of course. We got to pick one. 
Okay. Um, we'll go with uh. We'll go with B. Change the world. Yeah, make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. All right, final question. You're at a meeting with the head teacher. I'm assuming that means principal. And you want to impress her. What do you do? A, tell her about the time you got lost in the Pacific and discovered a new continent. B, tell her the staff room reminds you of your lovely childhood in the countryside. <laughs> C, catch a wasp with your bare hands and tell it to never, ever come back. Or D, tell her a hilarious joke you know about stationery. I would know a hilarious joke about stationery. <laughs> that would be up my alley. All right. So your response is the, oh, soppy, S-O-P-P-Y. I've never heard that as an adjective about a person. The soppy drama teacher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're sensitive, smart, and creative. But if someone slams a door near you, you might start crying. That sounds about right. There you yeah. go, Tanya. Yeah, okay. That, Good that times. Teacher personality. Aren't you glad you know yourself better? I'm so glad, yes. And now for part three of Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. Um, this was just a couple of chapters plus an epilogue here. And there was a lot to dig into on chapter eight, information processing to build intellective capacity. Um, so there's a, this is where I think it gets the most, here's some strategies you can actually use. Yeah, I agree. Although they have to all be in within context of, you know, understanding brain development and understanding the value of culture in the classroom. Anyway, um, but lots of great takeaways. I don't know about you, Carrie, but so many highlights. And I did stop to look up several um, strategies, but let's back it up a little bit and talk yeah. about the cultural cultural connection which is where my brain started lighting up and saying yay music because right. there was lots of talk about oral cultures using story song movement chants rituals dialogues um in order to learn and process and that yeah. this is the way so many cultures learn and process and then a lot of the initial suggestions were about including songs, including chants, including movement. And I'm like, hey, we're there. We're there. We're there. Already. Yep. Yeah. And I think it was really interesting. And she mentioned it this chapter. And then I think in the next chapter as well, it's not just about doing those things of that culture. So for example, if you happen mm -hmm. to have a classroom with a lot of students from Guatemala, it's not just being like, oh, we're going to do a bunch of music from Guatemala. And that's the cultural connection. It goes deeper than that. It goes into, this is how communal um, cultures learn because, yeah. you know, this goes then back to whatever chapter that was earlier on in part one, where she was talking about how, 
here in the United States, we're very individualistic and we want to do things on our own and all of that. But so many other cultures, especially cultures throughout Africa and Latino and Hispanic cultures are communal cultures where folks work together and they learn through storytelling and through music making and through communal experiences like dance and, you know, call and response and all that. So it's not just about getting to the culture of the students through their race. It's about getting to the culture of the students through what's inherent to their community and what they might be experiencing at home. And I just think that's a really different way to think about it that I haven't, you know, dove as deep into that as I have in the past, but that was a huge takeaway for me. Yeah. And that's much more meaningful and long lasting than memorization. Yeah. And I was really taken aback by um, the author describes uh, teaching in community college and how many of the students there really did believe that learning was memorization of dates and people and events. Yeah. And they didn't have those tools or strategies to really understand how they learn. And like community college, like we're talking about adults or near adults and how tragic that is. And I, honestly, I often think that that is a common view of many people. Um, yeah. I don't know if I've mentioned before, I was listening to a podcast that I listen to sometimes called Working and it's put out by Slate. And it was a while ago and they were talking about teaching and creativity. Um, and I need to listen to it again, but it really struck a, a, a chord in, in a negative way because the two hosts who had both taught it at the college level were discussing about, um, you know, teaching is just, you, you just have to, um, there, there comes a point where you're just giving information and the students have to take it in. And there's not much more to it and uh. trying to be creative about it. You know, there's not really any creativity. And I was just yelling at my car, you know, radio while listening to this. And it was just so short-sighted and so infuriating to me because it, even though these two individuals had taught adults before, they were just completely um, just missing this whole idea of, what it takes to learn and what it takes to teach people how to learn within the context of the subject that you're teaching. Yeah. And, and I, I nearly wrote an email, but I did not because. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that is disheartening. Yeah. I had the yeah. same thought of like, you know, thinking about all the folks who have read this book and I thought, okay, well, you know, secondary teachers are probably going to have a harder time processing and, and, and absorbing this as far as if it's new to them. And then I thought, well, even within the elementary world, I have a feeling that primary teachers are going to be like, yeah, all right, I'm already doing this, you know, versus maybe older upper elementary might have a harder time. But then I was thinking, yes, as music teachers, we're doing this, we're doing this. But then I thought again, well, not all music teachers are doing this because I think about music teachers who have been trained in more active music making philosophies, Kodai inspired teachers, Orf inspired teachers, Dalcros inspired teachers, versus music teachers that I know and you know, Tanya, who have taught in a more lecture style even at the elementary school level. So yeah. I think it's definitely still worth speaking and repeating um, 
for for all of us. And I mean, I'll admit it, there are times with my upper elementary kids where I talk more than I should, or I quote unquote lecture more than I should, because I'm trying to drive in some concept that's a little bit more academic with them. And it's just another really great reminder about the power of um, you know, active music making, not just because it's great to get the kids up and moving and it keeps them motivated and it keeps their attention, but also it it goes to a cultural, a deep cultural connection. And that's something that I'm going to keep reminding myself moving forward, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And and definitely music is an aural and an oral art. So that has to be happening all the time. And yeah. so we are going to do naturally less lecturing type of stuff. But when we talk about like active processing, I was I was thinking about my Kodai training and the idea of um, extreme focus during a lesson segment mm -hmm. and then having a relaxation after yep. that, you know, that whole focus and then relax. And in here we are talking about how neuroscience tells us that we can only focus up to about 20 minutes and then we need time to process yeah and then we need downtime and, and that was middle school age she said it in right. an average of a middle school age so subtract less for exactly so talk about your kindergartner or your yeah. first grader and then back to that idea that you and i have often spoke of uh keeping focused segments where you're really demanding something from them uh to be about the same minutes of the age of the child right so if you have a room full of six-year-olds six minutes is probably what you're going to get from them and and not much more and that's what you should plan for and the interesting thing is that they will tell you oh yeah um, in their own ways when they are um done yeah and when they are not getting it and it's pointless like as much as and i have been there for sure i have been in, in several times I should learn, but where I'm in front of a class and I'm like, oh, we just need to get this little bit. We're almost there. It doesn't matter. It's, it's over. If they're, if you've got to be able to read the room and see where your kids are. Totally. Uh, but back to that whole, you know, what I took from my Kodai training of they need that relaxation. They need that time to process and that time should be musical time anyway. Right. It's not a quote unquote brain break where you're not you're not connecting that relaxation time to what they just learned, but no. they're letting it steep and they're letting it sink in. And you might call attention to things on a very quick little level while you're doing a singing game or while you're doing a dance or whatever. But the point is that you're not lecturing to them and you're not filling their little brains. Their brains are just buckets that you're just filling with information. And then you just assume they carry it with them. They need to let it soak in, right? And let it, right. that little sponge. And right. speaking of Kodai-inspired music education, oh my goodness, on page 128, when she starts talking about the four steps to building intellective capacity, my brain just went ding, 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 because those four steps remind me so much of our PPP process in our Kodai-inspired mm -hmm. teaching. Oh, yeah, in a larger scope, for sure, yeah. I can see that. So those four things that Carrie's referring to are... Um, building intellective capacity and the macro level instructional strategies go like this ignite where you get every you get the brain's attention chunk you make information digestible 
chew, actively process new information, and then review, have a chance to apply new learning. Um, during that Ignite phase, she talks about starting a lesson with some attention getting activity, drumming, chanting, music, hand clapping, and I'm like, wow, what another wonderful um, advocacy piece for us bringing the kids in with music, yeah. whether it's kids are coming in and listening and being focused in their listening and like listen for what instruments you hear or kids coming in the room as they are singing and they're making that mental switch that, okay, we were in the hallway. We were just in our classroom doing math. Now we're coming in the music room. Oh, hey, this is a novelty because it really is for them in their day what other part of the day are they going to be singing in yeah. and um that's attention getting but also sets the stage for your music lesson so right. and in a, in a kodai context that is your preparation stage that's where you're getting them excited about some new content knowledge through new songs new games new chants new activities but you're not coming in and saying okay kids today we're going to learn about Ticka Ticka, 16th notes. You are doing all of these songs and games with Ticka Ticka, not even calling attention to it, but you're feeding their their ears and their brains with some new information and getting them excited about it. So that yes. to me is, is that prep stage moment, right? And you know what? Um, can I tie this? Well, uh, can, can I kind of tie this to some other ideas from Marzano, whom she mentions quite a bit in these yes, two, yeah. two chapters? Okay, but I'm not sure how other teachers have um, been using learning targets or how that is supposed to go in your classroom. Um, and I, and I, I don't have anybody specific to point fingers at as far as like my understanding of learning targets. I'm not blaming any principals or anything, but my understanding of learning targets is that once kids are in the room, you direct them to the learning target. This is what we're learning. Da, 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 and then you refer to that learning target. Okay, how does that work with igniting their attention? I don't think it does. I don't think it does either. And part of my problem with learning targets, and then I have several problems. We could hold do a whole other podcast episode on that. <laughs> oh, we but, should. Yeah. Well, one of my problems with learning targets is who is that for? Right. Because when, when you t stand in front of kids and you show them the text that says the learning target and you read it to them or you read it in unison, which I've seen in a music uh -huh. classroom, uh -huh. which, is, which is a little frightening. Because the um, principal asked the teacher to do that, likely, not because the teacher necessarily thought it was a good right. idea. What, what neuroscience does that, I mean... I don't, I think if, if, if you had this book and you, and you talked to your administrator about it and cited this book, it might make your administrator think differently. Um, I think if one does have the requirement or is being asked to have students read or recite or whatever learning target, that can come later in the lesson. It doesn't have to come right then. No, because what do you want your kids to do when they first come in the room? You want them joyful and you want them actively participating in something, in our case, music. Right. So I think if there is a moment to sit and go over the learning target, it needs to be when you're about to do the task that specifically addresses the learning target. 
Well, yeah. And again, this is one another another problem I have with the learning target is most of my tasks are towards the learning target or what I have in mind for what we are mostly focused on in that lesson. But I don't think that it's helpful to tell them before they discover it on their own. Exactly. So with that said, then the next you know, um, step in this building intellectual capacity is what she calls the chunk stage. So making the information digestible. So I wrote in the margin, that is your late preparation into your presentation of the concept. When you're taking all of this stuff that's swirling around in their head and their ears, and you're making it conscious to them through physical and then oral and then visual means. Now for us, that happens over a longer period of time because of how frequently we see our kids. I get the feeling that when she's talking about these steps, she's talking about this happens all in one lesson or one or two lessons really. Yes, definitely. But for us, this is going to take a lot longer and that's just the way that it goes. But this is where I think if you were to specifically address a learning target, it could happen during this stage or in the next couple of stages when you're making that learning visible and you're giving vocabulary and specific information around that learning. But the whole point is, is that it's in digestible chunks. And this is where the whole child-friendly philosophy and sequencing of Kodai is so beautiful, is that we are teaching our students through rhythm syllables and through solfege and through pattern work and through play. And and we're teaching them in those digestible chunks. And again, we're not sitting here and saying, okay, students, this is a quarter note. A quarter note is one sound and one beat. These are eighth notes. Eighth notes. We're saying this is ta, this is tt, and they've had all these experiences playing and chanting and clapping back ta and tt patterns that when you teach it to them, it's that one little second. And all of a sudden, you've chunked that information in their brain and it makes sense to them. Right, exactly. And yeah, um, I think it's really worth pulling out. You just mentioned it, but I just want to make sure we're clear that if you're not familiar with the the prepare present practice model it doesn't happen in that entirety of prepare present practice within one lesson no that the prepare present practice is over several lessons that if you are specifically preparing say a melodic concept like so me um, you would be preparing that and having them do unconscious learning for I don't know, three to four lessons, depending on how much time you're, there's, you know, go take your levels if you're not sure what's going on. But um, that, yeah, prepare happens over a few lessons, present happens in a nanosecond, and practice happens for the rest of your life. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then but, the next section, she calls it the chew section. She talks about actively processing new information. So there is your early practice stage where you're taking this new knowledge and you're you're understanding it and digesting it and you're specifically applying it to songs and chants and activities that feature that concept, but things that the students already know. Songs that they've been hearing, oh, here's that song, Tidio, and now here are the 16th notes or the ticka ticka within that song that we've been singing and playing and doing body percussion for for weeks. Now all of a sudden we can read it with that new rhythm. So it's mm-hmm. applying that new concept to things that are known before you start to make it abstract and put in things that are unknown. 
Yes, exactly. And then she finally talks about the review stage. And in the review stage, that to me is that later practice stage where you are taking the new information and you're applying it to new things. And um, in our case, that often equals learning new repertoire with that concept or doing composition and improvisation where students are taking that new concept and they're applying it in their own creative ways. Um, so anyways, I don't know if you had the same thought, Tanya, but I got really excited when I read those four things. I was like, ooh, that sounds just I like us. I did. But I wanted to back up a little bit about cognitive routines. Yeah, 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 please. Because these are some of the things that I think classroom teachers, they get a lot more of this in their PD than we do. And I was right away seeing how I could apply some of these specific strategies to um, my classroom. Here's the here's the balancing act that we have to do in a music classroom. And uh, I'm, you know, when you get these new strategies, it's very exciting to think, oh, hey, there's a way we can review information. But we always have to remember that the ultimate reviewing of information in a music classroom is going to be doing music. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Reading music, creating music, right, making compositions, playing the instruments. So I have had um, times where I find myself kind of going on a tangent of like, ooh, and then we'll, we'll get into these groups and we'll we'll talk in depth about this and then we'll trade around partners. And and that's all fine and good. But we got to remember, I have to remember me, that it's all about applying that to being musical. Right. And there's times where we can talk about other musics that we are hearing, that we are listening to, um, definitely within a cultural context. That's a fantastic thing to be able to do. But ultimately, I, you need to be able to perform the music. The students yeah. need to be able to perform the music, um, read the music, and do all those things. So within Chapter eight and within um, some of these cognitive strategies, there were some that I weren't was not familiar with and that I looked up and some of these that we could definitely try in the music room. Like there's World Cafe, four on a pencil, give one, get one. Um, and World Cafe is a um, protocol where you group kids in groups of four kids for groups of four around the room if you can set up desks to make it like a cafe that's kind of fun to do but there's one student in each group who is the leader and then you give them a prompt something to have a, a short discussion then when they've had a few minutes to discuss um, the student who was designated the leader of each group stays at that table and the other kids rotate to the next table mm-hmm once those new kids are at the next table, the leader who was left over from the previous group gives a summary of what that group talked about. And then a new leader is chosen. So and can so you give an example a, of like a discussion topic you might consider doing with your students in the music room for World Cafe? Did you have one in mind? I did not, but I, right away I was thinking about this could be connected to listening yeah so we could I was thinking be the same thing listen and you know you could even take it as far as um you could be listening to a specific artist and you could listen to a 30 second segment of a piece of music for each rotation even mm -hmm. and you could yeah. make connections to the last piece that we heard yeah so i'm just spitballing here no that's great yeah so like if for your musician of the day have four different pieces or four different songs by that same artist or group and then have them listen to a little snippet and yeah 
That's yeah. cool. So anyway, just a, a different way to do it, right? Because we're, I have not experienced a lot of these protocols. Like I know classroom teachers get these um, often. And ultimately we want to make sure we're going back to making music, but this would be a good way for them to really take it all in and process it really yeah. well. And again, giving them that communal opportunity to talk and learn and process through through that community building aspect of just talking. Um, and just to clarify, she doesn't necessarily lay out these protocols in the book. She no. referred to them and Tanya did some homework on her own and found some resources about these protocols. So we'll be sure to link all those in the show notes so you can. Yeah, there's some good little videos in there. And can I read from the bottom of page 136? Please. Okay, because we're talking about um, review. Now we're in the, we're in that stage where we're reviewing things. And yeah. this really, this rings some bells for me in brain rules. And this is the bottom of page 136 in brain rules, Medina 2008 reminds us that rehearsal using the new knowledge or skill and repetition, revisiting it in timed intervals is the mental glue that cements learning. Well, okay. My brain is, is thinking this is a, Kodai lesson, right? Where we are using new knowledge and we are revisiting old knowledge and we are building on what we already know. Um, but that we have again, those short segments where we are singing, playing, being joyful. And then we have some time where we're focused in on, okay, now we're reading those four sixteenth notes mm -hmm. in a new piece of music, mm -hmm. right? So when we talk about these timed intervals, all of these things are going to cement learning. And, you know, so often I'm thinking um, as I'm preparing for teaching Kodai level one and I'm cleaning up some concept plans and, and looking at stuff that, wow, if you want to make sure kids come away with a solid knowledge of musical concepts and some skills to read, write, think musically, Kodai is like ironclad. Right. Yes. And <laughs> on pages 137 and 138, she gives some specific ideas for this, this practice stage or this review stage, as she calls it. So playing games. So I think about like our flashcard games and King of the Mountain and Poison Pattern and all those kind of games that we play, right? That's a great way to cement this knowledge. Yes. She talks about solving mysteries or real life problems. So to me, that could be- That sounds like, like project-based learning to me. Right. It could be that. It could be an escape room. It could be preparing for a concert. That's, you know, a real right. life- project or something i know um, yeah it sounds however, like i run off the rails with the code i talk but what i'm trying to say is right. that a lot of these things that are mentioned in the review stage are things that are inherent within a Kodai classroom totally. like you mentioned the games the revisiting concepts the short segment less of, of parts of your lesson um yeah yeah well, and then what I, I wanted to say where i feel like in my Kodai education i have fallen short is thinking more about the project-based learning and the long-term projects. And I know this is something like our good friend Aileen Miracle talks a lot on her podcast and in her blog about times where she has done project-based learning in her classroom. I've dabbled in it in a little bit, but to me, that's something I want to go deeper on because I think that's where we make all of that learning become visible and applicable 
applicable to the kids' lives. Because I think sometimes still, and we've talked about this so many times, you know, what we do is music within the music room for music's room's sake. And it doesn't necessarily apply to music outside of the music room and music within their own lives. So how can we build that bridge? And I think this is one way to really think about it is long-term projects where we're connecting that learning in a deeper way, in a more authentic way, something that I'm always trying to do better with. Yes, I agree. And I have thought that as well. Um, the, my reasoning for not having delved deep into that is simply the scheduling of it, you know? Yeah. And simply the amount of time that we see the kids and the frequency of when we see the kids and designing something that could fit into that time frame. And that's just an excuse. I'm sure there is a way. In fact, um, I know that you and I are on the same page with this. I need to write or not, I need to write, I need to help students write a school song for the new school that I'm going into, new to me school. And I know you've talked about that going into your new school as well. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking this needs to be a project-based learning lesson. Yeah. And so that said, if anybody has done this and have wonderful ideas (laughs) and want to share, please reach out because- Yeah, I'm just in the beginning stages of thinking how this might go. Yeah. Well, before we move on to the final chapter, I just want to read a quote that I highlighted that, again, just kind of summed up this concept. It's on page 140, second paragraph down. It says, keep in mind that culturally responsive information processing doesn't have to be race specific. It does have to be grounded in the context of students' lives. So again, thinking bigger than just, I'm going to do a song from this country because it's where my kids come from versus I'm going to be using these strategies that are more inherent to to cultures that are communal. Um, that to me is really what the big takeaway was. Definitely. And that is a awesome lead into chapter nine, where we're talking about creating a culturally responsive community for learning. And to piggyback on what you just said on page 143, she mentions, there is a tendency to get stuck on how to decorate the room with the right cultural cultural artifacts rather than how to create the right ethos to set the social and emotional tone. Brown and, and Campion, 1994, Ladson Billings, 2009, which made me think of Instagram, honestly. Oh yeah, and TPT, it, it's, it's, yeah, it goes deeper than just the posters you put on the wall, although those things can have impact. In, but she, she really gets specific on this, on your classroom aesthetics on page 144 and 145. She mm-hmm. even gives a, a good old bullet pointed list. You know how much I love my bullet pointed list of more authentic ways to have your students feel like they are within a community of learning that accepts them and embraces them and celebrates them. Um, so, you know, having real artwork in your classroom, prints from artists within your community versus just a bulletin board pack that you bought off TPT or you saw on Instagram, right? Exactly. And, you know, I understand the desire to make one's work environment be really inviting to them because you're thinking, I'm here all day. This is my room. I want it to be the way I want it to be. And I totally get that. However, who is that for every time i see something on instagram that's just beautiful i think okay but is that for the students is that for the kids does that engage the kids does that get any messages i mean it does get messages across to the kids i knew a grade uh, level teacher that 
had that said she didn't put anything on her wall that wasn't created by her students. Yeah. And it was really interesting because her students really did reflect that they felt like a family. Like I always knew her students and that classroom, they were going to be more bonded to each other. It just was very interesting, just like as a little aside, um, that that was something that she really wanted to show in their environment that this everything on the everything on the wall everything that's here it comes from the students because this is their room now yeah. does that mean that you can like take pictures of your classroom and then put it on instagram sure you could but people aren't going to be wowed by your rainbows so you right. know and your chevron patterns and all of your yeah uh, yeah i mean to me that doesn't reflect like you said the values of the students it doesn't reflect the community of learners it reflects you and your personality and there's something to be said for that because you know it lets the the students get to know you in a way like my favorite color is pink so guess what i've got all this pink stuff in my class but what are your kids favorite colors because i guarantee a lot of them aren't gonna like pink so you know what yeah, yeah. what are we doing to make sure we're we're embracing all of them with these thoughts. And, you know, I think about us music teachers, and I mean, I've done this too. I've consciously made the effort to find, and I bought it on TPT, uh, a hand-signed Soulfish set that has different skin tones. And that's great, but that's not it. I can't just put those on my wall and say, there, I've checked that box. I'm now a culturally responsive teaching teacher yeah. because I have different skin tones of my hand signs. It's deeper than that. Um, and yeah, something that I will definitely be thinking about as I'm setting up my classroom this year for sure, because um, setting up a new classroom, I'm really thinking about what I want that space to look like and feel like. And yeah. she gets a little bit, you know, hippy dippy, I guess you'd say when she's talking about that. But it's true. There is like, there is a feeling you get when you walk into a classroom. It's more than just what your eyeballs are seeing. It, 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 it contributes to your overall sense of well-being when you walk in the classroom. So it has to do with the lighting and the colors and the way the classroom is set up, you know, for, for learning. And yeah, it's not all about making it look cute. It's about making it feel yeah. right. Yeah. Well, let's get into some of those deeper things that make a classroom feel like a home for those students. So we're talking about routines and rituals uh -huh. and giving, oh, I just loved when I saw student agency and voice Yeah. and again, emphasizing how we learn the most when we're in conversation with others, but I'm getting ahead of myself with the <laughs> routines and rituals. Again, I was like, well, out of necessity, I am as a music teacher, I have some very solid routines and rituals because we teach kindergarten through six. So you should have some things in place. Yep. Um, and it's a beautiful thing when you've got those kids who were your third graders last year, and now they're the fourth graders. And if you've laid the groundwork, they come in and they understand pretty much how it's going to go with like the coming in singing or coming in and focusing on listening to a specific piece of music. And so she mentioned some specific ideas with a bulleted list of how you can reimagine routines that are culturally responsive. Open the day with a centering activity versus a traditional morning meeting. Well, we've got that going on if we're going with music. Use music or call and response to facilitate transitions from one activity to another. Are you oh, kidding man. me? That's my life. <laughs> right. um, that's my go-to transition when I haven't been fancy in my lesson planning. I, I'm singing the 
yes. The tune I, of whatever song while you're I'm singing Charlie over the ocean, and then I go, everybody go back, everybody go back to your spot. To and they, you know, we're right there with that. Yeah. Create after lunch transition routines to help students get their heads back into schoolwork. Yeah, it's all about getting them, setting the stage for the learning that's coming. Create routines for parallel independent work or sponge or anchor activities. Now that's something that I could work on. Yeah. Um, definitely. Well, I think, I mean, I remember you talking about this in years past, you know, having your protocols for your your elbow partner and your Crosstown buddy and those kind of things. There are some years I start strong with that and there are some years that I don't and then I just default to turn to your neighbor and then they always end up talking to the same people. So even something as simple as that, having those routines of different folks they can talk to in different ways they can pair share using some of those strategies you mentioned earlier, some of those protocols you had earlier. Um, leads to that feeling of yes. community. And right under the bullet point section, she's talked about the importance of the why, making sure your students understand the why when it comes to routines that might feel, um, you know, stifling or more like rules, right? More like, uh, you know, traditional classroom rules, but it's not about that. It's making sure students understand why you are asking them to do these uh, routines because it's going to lead to, to learning, because it's going to be um, an efficient use of our time, because you're going to get to talk with teammates and do these things in an efficient way, not just because I said so. And then she right. talks about you could have students have ownership by creating some of those routines themselves. Right. And this goes back to that student choice and agency, but it's just so important to think about that in the beginning of the years when we're setting up our class expectations that, you know, again, how many times have we seen on Instagram or TPT or whatnot, here are my music rules, M-U-S-I-C, and I've got a cute little thing for each one of those letters. Okay, so you tell that to your kids and then what? You know, versus having them come up with, and this is something I've done the last, I don't know how many years, with my older students especially, is having them come up with the bullet points of what do you expect of me as your teacher? What can I expect of you as a student? What can we expect of each other? So that this is a productive music making space. And when they come up with those ideas, they have so much more ownership. And then later when I'm referring to it, I say, remember when we talked in the beginning of the year, you told me that you valued making sure we cleaned up after ourselves when we finished an activity so that the room is clear and safe for the next one, for example, you know, and they, oh yeah, okay. And then that's not me nagging at them saying, remember, you're supposed to be cleaning up your space because I say so. It's they came up with that with yeah. guidance, of course. But um, I'm just a big fan of that rather than day one sitting down and telling your students the quote unquote rules, having them come up with the routines and procedures that make sense to them in their language. Yes, yes. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Um, yeah. And then she talks a lot about rituals and routines. I think about when you've talked in the past about having greeting your students at the door. I've personally not done this, but I know lots of teachers who have, you know, with the students can choose the handshake or the hug or the dance or the fist bump or whatever. That's an example of a routine that's you know, or a ritual that's starting off your class with that wonderful connection that you're making with each student. So whether it's that, or in my case, we usually always sing some sort of an opening song or a hello song, especially with the younger students. 
um, at the beginning of the year, I'm singing the name of every single student. So I'm getting to know them and remembering their names. But I think that creates even a deeper connection. When students hear you sing their name, they Mm -hmm. smile. They think it's so exciting because you are making that millisecond connection with them. And that's just that to me is a ritual that's very important at the beginning. And it's very powerful and it builds relationships on top of that. And I still do the greeting at the door with during COVID, we had to change things. So we did like a dance party. Yeah. The second dance party or um, a wave or something like that. But, and that's something I'm going to keep doing because um, I'm looking for eye contact in addition to saying their names, in addition to if we can, if it's safe, making physical contact. Um, all of those things make a big, big difference, especially when you have so many students that you are teaching. Um, and I know this next year, I'm going to have lots of kids' names to learn. Mm-hmm. So the more that I can sing them at the beginning of class with the younger ones and say them with the older ones. I, at the beginning of the school year, I just sound like a moron because I am just constantly using kids' names whenever I possibly can. Yeah. And that's for me. That's for me to get it down. Right. Um, so let's lead towards student agency and voice. Yep. Because when they have agency, when they have a voice then they have ownership over their own learning. Um, And so there's lots of talk about talk structures Mm -hmm. um, and and the importance of of that. I'm looking to see, oh, there's World Cafe again. A few more protocols that you can use for that. Mm -hmm. Some chalk talk. I've done chalk talk in uh, staff meetings and- and Right. I think for me, my default is always, I read these things and I, I mean, I always say it, I don't have time for this. I don't have time. So chalk talk is where you get out a big piece of paper, like one of those big giant sticky notes and Mm -hmm. you have students record ideas and da, 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 da. To me, it's like, oh, I just don't have time for that. We're just going to have a whole class discussion and move on with life, you know, whatever it's about. Yeah, but even the novelty, if nothing else, the novelty of doing Oh, I know. I mean, let's talk about the beginning of the year and you were mentioning how you like the students to come up with the rules. Yeah. Could you have kids in small groups do this chalk talk activity? Oh, I have. Focused yeah. on the rules? Like, yeah. is that how you've done it before? Yeah, very specifically with that activity I have. So like, um, you know, I've taken whatever our PBIS tenants are of the school, whatever the four or five things, split kids into groups and then given them each a big piece of paper and they brainstorm ideas and then we share out. Um, what I'm talking about is specifically, and maybe it's just me, but as the year goes on and yeah. I get bogged down with my quote unquote concepts, right? My Kodai inspired concepts. And these are specifically rhythmic and melodic concepts. I think in my head, I don't have time for this other stuff. This yeah. is the kind of stuff or concert preparation. When we get into programs and concerts, man, then we start to feel stressed. So I'm just saying it out loud for myself that it's worth the time to do this not in every single lesson obviously but to intentionally plan you know a protocol like this um maybe once a month at least or once every I mean even every other month just to make sure that I'm I'm keeping it fresh in my brain so I'm probably going to take some of these protocols and maybe put them on a little you know laminated binder clip situation where I can flip through them and look for one and go hey we haven't done this one maybe we try this one this and maybe with just one grade not everybody you know start small 
Well, and the thing is, if you if you revisit some specific ones, then, you know, they'll have the flow of it better the right. next time. Because I hear you. I, I often also have been like, how do I have time? We should be making music. Yep. And I know that the very first time we do something like this, they're going to need lots of guidance. And that's yeah. just the way it is. Yeah. But talking, I mean, the argument I'm having with myself, not you, is talking about music is making music just in a different way it's processing music in a different way especially if we're talking about areas of listening and quote-unquote music appreciation you know those kind of areas where um that does require a little bit more um of that interaction and and you know i used to do listening journals all the time where students would just sit and write a response to something well instead of writing a response to something it's going to be more powerful and more culturally responsive if i give them the opportunity to talk to each other about it right um, could they write have an less and then talk yeah. And I might not have an artifact to grade, but I can walk around and listen to their conversations and I can still record grades based on what I'm hearing them say. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally possible. Definitely. All right. So, boy, there was a lot to chew on. And now I need my <laughs> now I need my time to digest. Um, yeah. What do you think it, of the it, epilogue? I just I mean, it, I love that she gives specific ideas of okay now that you know all of this what can you do specifically because yeah. i know everybody wants to have that you know checklist of do this exactly. do this do this here's some things that you could get started and i love how she talks about sunday afternoon moves like yeah she reframes this idea instead of the monday morning test can i walk into the classroom on monday and use this that or the other I want you to think of this as a Sunday afternoon move when you're planning for the week. What could you input there? Like, could you rethink how you organize time in your classroom to accommodate more information processing time? Give more time for things to sink in and process. Could you revisit the lesson plan and begin to analyze and deconstruct them for culturally responsive elements that we've talked about? Um, Oh, I like, I highlighted, pick one small thing from each of the four areas of the Ready for Rigor framework and begin working them into your daily practice, which is what I need to do. I, I need more rigor in my classroom. I know this um, because especially during the past two years, I've kind of defaulted to, well, everybody is kind of having a hard time. So let's lower the bar. I know yeah. I've done this. Yeah. And so... I would love to be a warm demander yep and and be goal. realistic about how that can happen yeah yeah and like i just said having some specific protocols i can draw upon so when i'm doing my sunday afternoon lesson plans which i actually do often do sunday afternoon lesson plans i can look at you know this list of protocols and say okay i'm going to do one of these with one grade this week Let's try mm -hmm. it. Or I'm going to come back to this one we've already done and it's going to go quicker this time. But yeah, I, th I think like any good professional development, especially something like this that isn't laid out and structured in a linear way, um, it's all about small changes that will that will add up to big effects in our in our classroom yeah. and i also love this bit that she talks about leading and being a leader for equity within your you're, school you're just taking all my stuff Karen. i'm sorry 
But man, I mean, I know this is something you and I value, Tanya, because of the committees we've served on within our own district and because of this podcast we're doing right now that we don't have all the answers. We're, we're learning and we're on the process with everybody else, but we're having the conversation and we're having the conversation for everyone to hear, which is vulnerable. Um, but it is what it is. And hopefully by us having this conversation and you're reading along and listening too, you can also be that be the change within your community in your area. Yeah. Yeah. And something that, that as I was reading this list of like, here's how to get other educators and administrators um, interested in these ideas. I was thinking, you know, this book really should be a book study that comes with a check in with your group and report back on one small thing you've done from this chapter or check back, you know, I, I wish we would have done this with a group of people that we could have discussions with because, know. you know, you and I discussing and part of the reason we started this whole pod podcast is because we understand um, that I, you and I learn by talking things out. Right. Right. And now those people who are listening, hopefully you're, you're talking back at us. I'm all for that. You're but right. boy, wouldn't it be nice if we could have a group of talking people? To share okay. with and process with. I'm just going to put this out there. Okay. <laughs> and you can say Oh, no, no. you're going to rope us. I thought about I'm this, but go. I'll let you what say if, it. Well, no, okay, just start with this idea. What if you and I just right now say that we are going to have a follow-up podcast to this book in November, January, later what? in the year. January, November, what? Well, I'm just throwing out later in the year. I was going to say November, but we have a very busy fall, but that doesn't mean we're not podcasting. We still do. But um, no, my point being that if you and I are accountability partners in that way, where you and I can discuss one or two small changes or things we've been striving to do since reading this book, then maybe we can open it up to listeners to respond in some way. I don't know what that way is yet, but I don't know. I'm just putting it out there that, you know, normally when we do a book study, we read the book and we talk about it and then we're kind of done. That doesn't mean we're not processing and using the information on our own but we don't talk about it on this podcast what if right now we make the commitment tanya to revisit how this book has changed us in okay, smaller, but big way? we have to really do it okay november okay. um yeah could okay could we add to this that maybe we could do i don't know um, could we do another zoom and invite people who want to yeah tell something yeah yeah because that way for those of you who maybe aren't listening to this in real time maybe you didn't have time to read over the summer maybe we're inspiring you to read now so if you haven't read the book you have until november <laughs> and then you can try to implement some things yeah. 2022 yeah 2022 november yeah because it would be fun to have like a zoom call see if anybody shows and talk we had a about... few people last time it was it was fun. It was a hoop. Oh, it was a lot of fun. And yeah. is there a specific thing? Well, see, and that's good. I need that kind of accountability because there are some things that I'm thinking about that I really want to, especially starting a new school. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And again, just little things, small changes. Doesn't have to be major. But like she said, like, it's about making that effort and not just 
you know, she, she says something in the epilogue that I was like, oh, yes, absolutely. And I mean, I can say that having worked in Title I schools, I've heard this a lot, but I'm sure it happens everywhere. On page 144, 154, excuse me, she says, the trick is moving from just complaining about issues that are beyond our control to becoming excellent at raising the achievement of students of color that are right in front of us. Yeah, that's awesome. That's the trick. <laughs> that is that is the trick, yes. Yeah. All right. Well, I just want to say I'm so glad we read this book. I know you and I have been talking back and forth about whether it would be a good choice just because it's not music specific, but I think it's been. Oh, really my goodness. It's not. But, and yet it, it just goes so well it with does. music education. It's yeah. perfect. So with thanks for reading with me, Tanya. Thank you. So now it's time for the CODA section where we each recommend something we're enjoying right now out of the music room because it's summer. So Tanya, what have you yes. been enjoying? Well, just over the past couple of days, I got into watching this TV show on Hulu. It's a new series. It's a drama called The Bear, and it is uh, focused on a Chicago restaurant that does beef sandwiches. Um oh. And the new owner is actually uh, a brother of the previous owner, but um, he's like been uh, a world-renowned chef and been in very fancy French restaurants. And now he's come home to Chicago to run his family's um, beef sandwich joint. Um, and it's just, it's really good. The music that they use is really good. It's so well done. There's a lot of language. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of like people cutting themselves in the kitchen and, and grousing at each other. And um, it's just, I'm not like a, a a food kitchen watching TV person. Like I I don't do those reality shows or anything, but this is really good. Okay, so cool. anyway, a lot of language. So, you know, if a lot of F-bombs are going to upset you then don't go there um don't and watch with children and don't watch or oh, don't definitely don't watch with children unless yeah. they're much older um but it's a lot of fun the bear it's great that's awesome and uh, you like something i would like because you know, yeah you would probably like this chicago and cooking or oh yeah and there's so many great uh scenes of chicago from chicago but near chicago enough yeah. that i would enjoy it okay um i'm gonna be so basic but i don't care i'm gonna say it Hey, guess what? There's a show called Stranger Things. What? <laughs> I know. So here, here's what I want to say in case you were like me. Um, I did not love Stranger Things season three. Tanya and I have talked about this. I've not even often. finished Stranger Things. It's too gross. And you know what? It, it wasn't just the grossness. I just also found it to be a little over the top, a little campy, a little It was too so much. slimy. It's the sliminess. I couldn't and do it. And it was gross. Yeah. It was yeah. like all of it. And I, I've watched know. all the rest, but the sliminess yeah. of season so three. I was kind of honestly hesitant to watch season four, but then everyone was talking about how fabulous it was. So I watched it and oh my gosh, it is so good. And then um, because I was kind of late to watch it, I didn't have to wait long to then watch the last, you know, two episodes, the finales, part two of season four, whatever you want to call it. And so now 
I'm down the rabbit hole of, well, I'm going to go back to season one and watch it all over again, which of course I watched season one and two very quickly. And now I'm back on to season three and I'm like, Ugh, okay. But the second time it's not quite as bad and I'm appreciating some things differently because of season four. So anyways, I'm just putting it out there. If you were like me and season three kind of wasn't your favorite of Stranger Things and you're not sure about season four, but then you're probably like the only two people in the world who haven't watched it because didn't it like break the internet when it came <laughs> out? Like Netflix yes. actually yes, shut down. But, yeah. Um, and my I... 16 year old son literally stayed up till midnight and watched it as like the Harry Potter books, you know? Yeah. yeah. He saw it as soon as it, it hit. Yeah. It I know over. other people who did that as well. So, anyways, it's so good. I just, it's so fun. I mean, I, I'm of the era, but I'm more like um, when I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, I'm like the age of uh, Mike's little sister in the show. Like, Oh, I am the age of those kids, like exactly. almost exactly. Yeah. So I love the music and all the pop culture references. It's just, it's so great. It's such a great it show. It's awesome. Yay, Stranger yes. Things. We've reached the double bar line. Thank you for listening to Music Teacher Coffee Talk. Show notes can be found at musicteachercoffeetalkpodcast.com. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Music Teacher Coffee Talk. If you enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving us a review on iTunes to help others find this podcast. And we always appreciate folks buying us a coffee, so look for that link on our show notes and on our Facebook page. We are taking a short break before the school year starts, but we'll be back in August with strategies to start your school year on the right foot. Until next time, this is Carrie. And this is Tanya, wishing you happy musicking. Music